If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to Mark chapter 8. We'll be Mark chapter 8. Uh, no, Mark chapter 9, I'm sorry. Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. Is the word of the Lord. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better that you enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eyes cause you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. For the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, How will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you in the name of Christ and ask that by the spirit of Christ and for the glory of Christ, that you would open our eyes, that we would see and gain understanding from your word. Father, we desire to not only be hearers of your word, but believers of your word and doers of your word. So help us, Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. If you have children, at some point uh, as they get older, you have to have the talk with them. And as awkward and intimidating and scary as it might be, uh, to not talk to them uh, is to bring them harm. You leave them to interpret uh, new realities through what the culture says or what peers say or what friends say. Even worse, you leave them to figure these things out on their own. And one of the things we learn as parents is there's no one better suited to have those conversations with our children than us. God providentially puts us in those spaces to be honest about life and how they're changing and all of that. You might say that Jesus is having the talk with his disciples this morning. And he refuses to let the world tell them about the subject matter. He refuses to go to the cross without having what can be a hard and awkward conversation. But he chooses as their savior and as their friend, to have the conversation. And it's not about the birds and the bees. It's about hell. And in Mark's gospel, this is the only time it comes up. It's as if, if you understand the flow of Mark, in two chapters, Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem triumphantly. And he's going to be marching and moving towards his death. It's almost as if he's saying, before I go to a cross, we have to talk about hell. That's the beauty of preaching through books of the Bible. I don't get to control what happens next week. 
And today we're talking about hell. And I know it's awkward, it's sobering, it can be sad, but it's God's Word. And the Apostle Peter reminds us that everything in God's Word is for our good and for our godliness. So whether you are a believer or a non-believer this morning, we need to know about hell. And the first thing I want us to think about if you're taking notes is that hell is a real final destination. It's not the only real final destination, but it is a real final destination. You see Jesus reference hell as a place three times in this passage. He speaks about it in verse 43, if you want to underline it there. You can underline it again in verse 45, and he underlines it again. You can underline it again in verse 47. But notice also that there's this sort of progression that's happening in it. First, when he talks about hell in verse 43, he speaks of it as a place where the fire is unquenchable. And then in verse 47, he says, uh, the worm does not die there and the fire is not quenched. And so now he's not just saying it's painful and, and hard but he's also saying that it's forever, that there is no death of hell. It is an eternal destination. But if you're looking at your Bibles, uh, you'll notice that some verses are skipped. Mine goes from verse 42 to 43, and then it skips 44 and goes to 45. Then, there, then it skips 46, and it jumps to 47, and then it's 48 and 49 and then 50. And so you have to kind of ask, like, yo, we're missing two verses. What's that about? Well, that happens when you find different copies of maybe Mark's gospel. And some copies that they found would have 46 and have 44. And other copies that they found didn't have it. And so someone made a, a textual decision that, that these things were added. But, but here's the question. Let's, let, let's put them back in the verses, and, and let's say, hey, let's say that they should be there. Well, what would be there in verses 44 and 46, and you know what will be there? The same thing you see in verse 48, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so you could say that, that if we were to put those two verses back in this section, you hear the emphasis that's there? It's as if Jesus is saying, I'm going to tell you once, the fire never is quenched and the worm never dies. And in case you didn't hear me the first time, I'm going to say it one more time. And in case you didn't get it the second time, I'm going to tell you the third time that the fire never quenches and the worm does not die there, which makes us have to ask the question, what does he mean by the worm does not die? What is he talking about? Early on in Mark's gospel, I, I kind of floated out an idea that I think Isaiah is shaping Mark. Uh, and, and that quote, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, that comes straight from the book of Isaiah. And it comes from Isaiah chapter 66. And so you don't have to turn there, but if you look at the latter part of Isaiah 66 from verses 15 all the way through 24, this is the flow of it, and I want you to take the flow in. First, Isaiah says, and this is, is, is literally in verse 15, that behold, the Lord will come in fire, 
and his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment. And so Isaiah 66 pictures Jesus coming back in fire. And then after you have his great arrival, you have what Isaiah, what what we could say is a universal judgment. Right after Jesus returns in that way, Isaiah goes on to say that the Lord calls to himself both the righteous and the abominable, both those who sanctify and purify themselves and those who eat pig's flesh. And so you get this image, not only is Jesus returning in fire, but everyone, righteous or unrighteous, you're going to stand before him. And so in, in, in this passage, look at verse uh, 49, when Jesus says, everyone will be salted with fire. Who is the everyone? Is he talking about everyone in hell or is he talking about everyone generally? He is talking about everyone will stand before him when he returns in fire. Now, what happens to the righteous? Isaiah tells us, Isaiah says, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I shall make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. Who is he talking about there? He's talking about the righteous. Well, what about the unrighteous? That's where you get the verse that Jesus quotes. We, as in the righteous, will go out and look on the dead bodies of all who rebelled against the Lord, for their worms shall not die, and their fire shall never be quenched. You get how Isaiah 6, what Isaiah 66 is saying? Everybody's going to stand before him. And there are two eternal destinies. One is with him, with the new heavens and the new earth, and he remembers your name forever. And the other one is hell. And it too is forever. And you know how Isaiah ends? With that verse that Jesus just quoted. There is no Isaiah 67. There is no Isaiah 66, 25. Isaiah ends his book with Jesus coming to judge, everyone standing before him, some inheriting the new earth and the new heavens forever, and some going to hell where the fire is never quenched and the worm there does not die. And Isaiah drops the pen and he says, where are you going? It's serious. It's not how you grow a church by talking about hell and judgment. And leave it to us to reject that. We reject it, right? R.C. Sproul in his book, uh, Unseen Realities, Heaven, Hell, Angels, and Demons, he says, and he was writing before he went to be with the Lord about our historical moment. He says, our time seems to be a time where we are allergic to any serious discussion on the doctrine of hell. 
In fact, there has probably never been a time in church history when more people challenge this doctrine than in our present day and age. You hear what Sproul is saying? He's saying if you were to read all the annals of, of church history and you were to go back and look at how people viewed the doctrine of hell 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 500 years before Jesus, 2,000 years before Jesus, 5,000 years before Jesus, what we have in our day and age is arrogance at its finest. At no other point in church history have we been so allergic and disgusted and confrontational towards hell as a real, eternal destiny for some. You can go back and pull people way back there and they're going to say, no, we believe in that. But if we don't sort of rebuke this doctrine that way, we, we do it through what I would call minimalization. That there's a doctrine out there that uh, it's called annihilationism. It's this idea that if you were to go to hell, then you would cease to exist. That you would cease to exist metaphysically, physically, spiritually. You go and, and you would simply be no more. And some say that. That's just not what Jesus says. He says it's forever. And the worm doesn't die. And the fire is never quenched. Some minimize it through metaphor. We say, well, it's just metaphorical pain. It's just metaphorical gnashing of teeth. It's just metaphorical you know, sorrow and sadness. And Charles Spurgeon, here's what he says, and he's writing in his day. He says, do not begin telling me that there is a metaphorical fire in hell. Who will worry about that? If a man were to threaten me with metaphorical blows to my head, I would not worry one little bit. He would be welcome to give me as many lumps on my head as he pleased. And this is what the wicked say. That the torment in hell is metaphorical. It is not metaphorical. It's real. Some say the doctrine of hell is incongruent with the character of God. God is love. God is love. God is love. And this idea of God being a God of justice and vengeance and wrath, they want to dismiss that, erase that. And Tim Keller, in his book, Reason for God, he has a whole chapter on, on this very subject, and he writes about a woman who confronted him after a sermon. And she says, Dr. Keller, I disagree with you fully. My God is a God of love. He is sending no one to hell. And, and Dr. Keller said, excuse me, I, I would uh, encourage you to examine your own cultural location. And he says, why is it that you're not offended at God being a God of love? Why are you not offended at God telling us to turn the other cheek? Why are you not offended by those? Why are you offended by this doctrine of hell. And he says, I, I want to encourage you to consider what non-Westerners have thought about the doctrine of hell historically. And then he draws that he makes the case and he, he, he references a, a man by the name of Miroslav Volf, 
who's a Croatian, uh, a Croatian man who has experienced the violence in the Balkans. And he says, we do not see God's judgment as a bad thing or a barrier. For me, it's a comfort. He says, if you, he says, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not promise to make a final end to violence, would that God be worthy of worship? He says, imagine living in a sun-scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent. If you've seen your home burned down, your relatives killed, your children taken captive, and your wife raped, he says, you would long for divine justice. He says, those are in America who, who live in suburban homes, who are shielded from what the rest of the world sees. They are the ones spreading this false doctrine that hell is not real. But if you step out and you see and live and experience all the injustice and all the calamity and all of the vulnerability and all of the sickness and all of the sadness and all of the sorrow, there's a part of you that wants a God that will make everything right. And here's what Keller said. He says, what if the truth about God is transcultural? In other words, what, what is he saying? He's saying, apologetically speaking, what if God, over here in your culture, you don't want him to be a God of wrath. You want him to be huggy, feely, teddy bear, forgive all my sins, bring me near, never talk to me about justice and judgment. And he's like, okay. And then what about this person over here? Man, I want judgment. But I can't get with this God who's lovey, feely, forgiving. He says, what if God is truly transcultural? Which means there are part of things about his truth that are embedded into your experience. And what if there are things about the truthfulness of who he is and his justice embedded in their experience? And what if God condemns some of what's in your culture and your views and he condemns some of what's in your culture and in your views? And what if the truth of God surfaces from Scripture that says, yes, he is a God of love. And even though you don't believe that, that's true. And he is a God of wrath and fury and vengeance. And you may not believe that, but it's true. And maybe in your cultural expression, you're blinded to some truths about who he is. It's an apologetic that Keller is using to have us really examine our own barriers that we bring to the table based on where we are and how our lives are. But he says, you're not the ultimate judge over God's truth. He's revealed himself from his word to be loving and merciful and a God of vengeance and a God of wrath. It's not an either or. It's a both and. And here's the thing. I can't convince you with my words alone. The Holy Spirit has to bring that to be. But I do know that Jesus talks about hell more than he talks about heaven. And I do believe what he wrote and what's written about him in Colossians 1, that for by him and through him and to him, all things were created. Were the thrones, 
or powers, things seen, things unseen, it makes perfect sense to me. We have not seen hell, and our minds cannot comprehend it. But there's one who has. He made it. It's for those who reject him. And when he comes to earth, he holds no punches. This is a real eternal destiny. The second thing we see in the passage is, is, are some hard truths about hell and the easy road there. There's a card game, and it's, it's called Would You Rather? And it's a, a conversation starter game. And you basically, you're with a group of friends, and each of you will draw a card. And on the card, you might be asked a question like, would you rather lose the ability to speak forever or would you rather lose your ability to read forever? Now, if you're a bookworm and you're an introvert, then that's kind of an easy question, right? But the questions get a little more intense. Would you rather sell all of your possessions or sell an organ? Oh, wow, I got to think about that, right? Would you rather lose a year of your life or spend a year in prison? Which is better? Would you rather know when you were going to die or how you were going to die? You see what those questions do? They kind of have to, they, they make you say, whoa, which one is better here, Pastor, right? I think what's going on in our passage is, is Jesus is doing, a, would you rather? He's trying to get us to see, would you rather do X and have X happen to you or go to hell? Would you rather this over here happen or go to hell? Would you rather this over here happen or go to hell? And here is where Jesus is landing. He is saying everything over here, the hardest thing you can imagine, it is still not better. No, it's still not worse than spending eternity apart from God. Now, you see it in the passage because he's doing this, it is better language. It is better that you do this than do this. It's better that you do this than do this. It's better that you do this than do this. And so what's in card one? Would you rather have a great millstone hung around your neck and be thrown into the sea or go to hell? Now, here's a millstone. We don't use that language every day. That's a millstone. And if you see, it's tied to the neck of a donkey, and you can't see, but in that crevice that it's in, there's grain or something. And that donkey just kind of walks that thing, and he walks it. And whatever is in its way is sort of crushed and ground. Now, here's the thing. that It takes about three or four men just to pick that up and to put it where it is. Now, think about the image. Thank you, Jimmy. Think about the image. When Jesus says that it is better that that 
be tied around your neck, which will have certainly broken a person's neck, and then be thrown into the sea, which is not just a broken neck, but it's an epic way to go out of here. It's like brutal. A snap neck and drowning. You hear what he's saying? Hell is still worse. It's worse. You get the next image. Would you rather cut off your own hand or go to hell? Take a knife or a chainsaw and chop off your own hand and spend the rest of your life crippled. Do you know that he doesn't say go to a doctor and get it done? He says like you cut it off. He says nothing about a prosthetic. He says nothing about antiseptic. He says, you cut it off. And he says, I'm telling you, it's better for you to enter into the kingdom of God than to go to hell with both of your hands. He ups the ante. He says, would you rather cut off your own foot or go to hell? It's better to enter life lame than with two feet than to be thrown into hell. Do the same thing with your hand, with your foot, and limp through life, never running, never playing basketball, walking with a limp and experiencing phantom limb pain the rest of your life. Jesus says, doing that through this life, one-legged, is still better than going to hell with two. He says, what about your eye? It's better that if it causes you to stumble, to take it out of the socket and to look at the optic nerve on this eye with this eye and to pull it a little more until it, until it snaps and you are going through life blinded. He says, look, it's better that you do that than to go to hell with 20-20 vision. And what if it all were to happen? It wasn't just one foot, but two feet. It wasn't just one hand, but two hands. It wasn't just one eye, but both eyes. And then a millstone was tied around your neck. And then you were thrown into the sea. And you know what Jesus says? If that were your lot, that's still better than going to hell. Why? It's no common grace there. God has given you breath to breathe this moment. He is sustaining you this moment. To go to a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where he turns his face and his presence away from you forevermore, and only comes to you in fury and vengeance forever? Jesus is like, no. Whatever you can happen to you in this life, as bad as it is, it's better than hell. Now, what if I told you the road there is pretty easy? All you do is do nothing. Do nothing. Go through life 
causing little ones to stumble. Now, in that passage, I don't think he's talking about little children. He could be using little ones, and very similarly to the gospel, I mean, to the, the epistle of John, where John calls the people he's writing little children. That it means a, an unimportant one, a small one. And I think when you look at the context of the passage, what happened last week? The disciples who were wanting to be great actually went to a no-named little one, not little as in stature, but little as in importance. And they tried to stop this guy who was a brother from casting out demons. And notice how this section ends. It actually ends, have sought in yourselves and be at peace with one another. I think the little ones that Jesus is talking about that the disciples had made stumble or were about to make stumble. It was the no-name brother who was not in their tribe, who they did not know, that they came and rebuked him. And Jesus is saying, that pride right there in you that wants to be great, that's about to throw water and douse, on, douse the fire of this brother right here, that pride in you right there, if you're not careful and you leave that unchecked, you're on the road. You know me in name, but not in spirit. And he goes on to say that if your own sin, right, if your own hand causes you to sin and you do nothing about it, maybe you're using your hands to steal or maybe we're using our hands to scroll and look at things inappropriate or maybe we're using our hands to fight and lash out on our wives and our children, or maybe we're using our hands to fudge the numbers and fudge the books. Jesus is saying, if you are using your hands in a way that does not bring me glory and you do absolutely nothing about it and your, your heart has grown cold around taking captive these members, he says, you better be careful because you might be on the road. He says it again. That if your foot causes you to sin and you do nothing about it, you're in danger. And maybe you're using your feet to walk in places you shouldn't be. Or maybe you're using your feet to walk behind someone to get another glance. Or maybe you're using your feet to storm off from your parents when they ask you to do something and you just stomp your feet and storm out of the room. You're using your feet as an expression of your repulsion and rebellion. Maybe you're using your feet to kick them up when the Lord calls his people into worship, but you want to be at home in the comforts of your own home. They're your feet. You tell your feet where to go, and you don't feel like being where God calls his people to be. Jesus is saying, if you are using your feet in that way, that does not bring him glory. And you're not convicted and you're the God of your own life, he says, you gotta be careful, you might be on the road. And maybe it's your eyes that your heart is never satisfied. You gotta find that perfect pillow, that perfect piece of jewelry, that perfect dress. You gotta look at that third car, that third house, that your heart is never, ever 
satisfied with what you have. And so your eyes are always looking and looking and looking. Or maybe you're using your eyes to look at someone you shouldn't in a way that you shouldn't. Or maybe you're using your eyes to look at everything else out there. You can tell us stats about, about a football game. You can tell me stats about how many yards somebody ran. Or maybe you're looking everywhere and you're not using your eyes to gaze upon Jesus. And you're not using those eyes to read the wonderful things from his law. And here is what Jesus is saying. If we're using our eyes that way and doing nothing about it, he says, we got to be careful. And so the road to that place that he's describing for us, it's easy. Just live life. Just do you. You don't have to be a serial murderer. You have to go kill nobody. Just do nothing. Do nothing with bringing these things under the submission and lordship of Jesus. Just do nothing is what Jesus is saying. This is what he means when he says in verse 5, we profess to be believers. Verse 50, we profess to be believers. But if we looked at our hearts and lives, our salt is losing its saltiness. Because we're doing nothing, we're not different. We're not looking away. We're not turning off the screen. We're not moving into the house of worship. We're not severing the work of sin in our members. That's the hard place and the easy road there. Our last point is, what's the easy way out? And the difficulty of the road home. Obviously, Jesus doesn't want us to literally cut off our hands and literally pull out our eyes. I think he's using vivid, colorful images, one, to show us the dangers of hell. But there's another thing he's doing here, and it's to call us, if we are professing believers, to a life of mortification. Now, what, what do I mean by that? As a believer, we must wake up, and a part of our identity through the cross is that we're killers but not of other people, of our own sin. We wake up and we realize that there is sin to be killed. There is a God to behold. There is a proper usage of my members to render back to my king. Now, here's the question. How do we do this? Jesus doesn't say. He just says, cut it off. And if your eyes cause you to stumble, tear them out. He doesn't say, like, like how to do it. But I think this is where we have to step back from Mark's gospel and say, Jesus, where is the power and the desire? Where is the desire 
for me to live this way towards you and to view my hands, my feet, my, my, my body, my eyes in a way that's different from the world, where is power for that? And you know, Christian, it's from the cross. You see, no one in this room perfectly uses eyes and hands and feet. Not one of us. But the good news of the gospel is, haven't we seen one who did? We believe that Jesus came and he used these hands to get on his knees and to wash feet. We believe that he used these hands to bring healing and to cast out demons. We believe he used these hands to serve and to lift them up in adoration of the Father. We believe he used his eyes and never looked at a woman lustfully. We believe he used his eyes and beheld the glory of the Father. We believe he used his eyes and he looked at the poor and the marginalized and those who were suffering and he actually wept because they were sheep without a shepherd. There was no arrogance in his gazes. There was no lust in his gauges. And what did Jesus do with his feet? He walked and he proclaimed the good news to the captives that he walked and moved towards the broken, that when courage was demanded, he stood up to those who needed to be confronted. He did not cower under them. And we believe that this one who used his eyes, his hands, and his feet perfectly his entire life was then met with an untimely death. And we believe that a crown of thorns were placed on his head and the blood flow mingled down. We believe that as he was about to be crucified, they hit him in the head. We believe that so that the Messiah, the Lord of glory, was blinded by his own blood as he awaited the final wrath of God. And we believe that these hands that had all he ever did was serve people perfectly and use them perfectly, that nails were driven through them. And we also believe that he was crucified and a, a nail went in his foot and he was put on a cross so much so that in Luke 24, when Jesus goes back to his disciples, he says, believe me. And he says, look at my hands and look at my feet. You see, we believe that the only way out of that destination that awaits all of humanity is through the work of another. And his name was Jesus, Amen. the one who knew no sin, who became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All of your eye gazing, all of your hand idolatries, all of your feet idolatries, the Bible says, were placed on him. And we believe that hell landed on the cross. That's the only other place you'll find hell. It's there. 
when the father turned his face away from the son. And the father carried out his wrath on his son. We're going to go to hell. One of those two places. You're going to find it at the cross where Christ paid the penalty. Or you'll find it in eternity when you refuse to turn. And here is one of my favorite songs of all times. This is Shailene. He's drawing our minds and our hearts to what's happening on the cross. Listen to what he says. As we inch through the crowd, we need to be cautious. A Roman execution, men on three crosses. But all the focus is on the one in the center. The gate closes behind you. No one else can enter. The sight you behold is so odd you're stunned. The man hanging on the cross is God the Son. The scene is the craziest. Jesus being treated as if he's the shadiest atheist. The one who is sinless and just being treated as if being punished as if he was promiscuous, mischievous and filled with lust. The source of godly pleasure tormented on the cross as if he was a foul investor or a child molester. We should mourn at the backdrop. Jesus being torn up like he's on the corner with crack rock with porn on the laptop. He's treated like a rapist or maybe a slanderer. He's treated like a racist or maybe a philanderer. Jesus being penalized like he had sin inside, filled with inner pride while committing genocide. I could write a billion years and still can't name all the sins placed on the lamb that was slain. But know this, the main thing the cross demonstrated, the glory and holiness of God vindicated. And so forever will I tell, in three hours, Christ suffered more than any sinner ever will in hell. And so forever will I tell, in three hours, Christ suffered more than any sinner ever will in hell. That's the good news. That on the cross, Jesus became everything we're not. That we might become everything, almost everything he is. And that is what changes our hearts. That is what realigns our desires. That is what causes us to be born again to a living hope when we by faith see and believe and rest. And here is the other part of the good news. That is your justification. It is free. That's why we can say the road out of that place that we don't want to go to it's really easy. It's free. It costs you nothing because it costs him everything. Now, here's the misconception. The way home, the road home, it's not easy. It's hard. And that's what Jesus is talking about in this passage. Those of us on our way to our home with him, it's going to be a hard road. It's going to be some blood and some gore and some cutting and some blinding 
and some running from sin and making no provision for the flesh, that that's the context of the passage. He is calling us as believers who have been freed from our sin to embark upon a life of putting what is dead to death. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, if by the Spirit, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You hear what he's saying? We can't cut on our own. We can't do this on our own. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. He convicts us of our sin. He grows up, grows us up in our inner men and women. That he allows us to read the word of God and it becomes precious and he walks with you and he talks with you and he gives you strength that we lack in and of ourselves. That God is not a halfway God. He's giving us the Holy Spirit to mature us and to help us say no and to help us flee from unrighteousness. And to help us present our members as Bryant prayed back to the Lord as a living sacrifice. He will do it. He'll use his word, his presence, his people, the grieving we cause him, the remembering of his promises. He'll quicken our spirits. He'll get in there when the old man wants us to go right and he'll say go left. He'll give us unction. We as believers, we know the road out of hell is easy and the road home is hard. We're cutting and severing and pulling out people. But we can do it with his help and with his presence. I want to close with this. There's a man by the name of Aaron Ralston. He was a hiker and a mountain climber and mountain jumper. And he uh, was going on a climb and got caught between rocks. And he was there for 127 hours, unable to move, pinned down between rocks. He had a little water. He had a little ration of food, he had a camera, and he had a really cheap Swiss army knife. And he eventually cut himself loose. He broke two bones in his body and cut his arm right here, and he made it out alive. He cut through nerves and cut through skin and cut through flesh. And when he was later interviewed, they asked him, how? How could you cut and do that kind of drastic work on yourself? He says, I wanted to make it home. I want to be home. Do you believe that, Christian? 
that there's a home for you. You will see Jesus and you will struggle with this body of sin no more. There are new heavens and the new earth for you to enjoy. There are things that Jesus has in store for you that no mind can comprehend. And what Jesus is saying to us, it'll be worth it. Home will be that good. If me getting home means cutting and severing and running, Jesus says it'll be worth it. And that's true for you, Christian. Orient your cutting around the home that awaits you. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We ask your blessings upon your people and your word. Make us those, Lord, who cut and gouge and tear out to image you, but also to evidence that we are on our way home. Amen.